Let your continual mercy, O Lord, cleanse and defend your church, and because it cannot continue in safety without your help, protect and govern it always by your goodness, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Who do men say that the Son of Man is? Who do you say that I am? Two very interesting questions. The first is of little consequence, except that it sets up the second question, which is the most important question in the history of mankind. Uh, that's what I'm calling it anyway, and I think you might agree with me. All of us have asked and are still asking the question of ourselves, who am I? Uh, many of us still don't know. Jesus never asked this question, who am I, nor does he ask the question, who are you? We can infer from this observation that he knows who he is and he knows who we are. Jesus asks rather, who do you say that I am? Subsequently, we then will know who we are. This is what happens with Peter in our gospel reading, our story this morning. When Jesus asks the disciples, who do you say that I am? Peter tells him, not because Jesus needs to know who he is, but because Peter needs to know and the disciples need to know so that Peter and the disciples can know who they are. We can infer from this that we don't know who we are until we know who Jesus is. I know it's very much in vogue for, um, you know, for us. We think we're doing the right thing when we've looked within. We find ourselves, and then we look even more deeply within and find our authentic selves, and then determine what our lives should become. Our story for today would suggest that we don't find ourselves by looking within. Eventually, you're going to have to do that, but we rather find ourselves first by receiving a revelation of who Jesus is and then allowing him to tell us who we are and give us our life's purpose. While Jesus did die in the conscious commitment to the salvation of the world, and that's our universal Jesus, our universal Christ, our encounter with Jesus whereby he becomes a living reality and we in turn become more real, more really who we are, that is personal and specific to each of us. Uh, in the movie uh, Men in Black, Agent K, uh, Tommy Lee Jones, uh, says to Agent J, Will Smith, a person is smart, people are dumb. Who do people say that I am, says Jesus? People say Jesus is a prophet, and the people are dumb. They get it half right. I mean, Jesus is a prophet, but he's not just another prophet in a line of prophets. So they get it all wrong because they get com miss completely what he really was. To get the right answer, Jesus has to bring the question home to a person, to Peter, to you, to me. Jesus had a dual identity. He was a citizen of heaven and of earth. Two passports, son of man and son of God. And the Son of God is hidden except to those whom the Father reveals. And even then he is not completely revealed because God is more mystery than he is revelation. And it's one of the deepest mysteries of the gospel that the Son of Man, the specific and particular person of Jesus, is universally recognized while the Son of God, the one who comes from outside the world, can only come by revelation to the individual 
whereby he turns people into persons. And we don't know the real Jesus until we understand he is both son of man, grounded to this earth, this rock, and also son of God, transcendent. In her book, Holy the Firm, Annie Dillard recalls and meditates on the medieval idea that there is a created substance at the absolute base of everything, deep down in the waxy deepness of planets, but never on the surface of planets where men can discern it. And it is in touch with the absolute at base. The name of this substance is Holy the Firm. Everything eventually touches it. Something that touches, something that touches holy the firm is in touch with the absolute, with God. And this holy the firm is none other than Jesus, of whom John wrote, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands, the eternal life which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us. You are the Christ, the Son of God, says Peter, holy the firm. And what does Jesus say to Peter? You are the rock, holy the firm, on which I will build my church. Note that, I will build my church. Not, Peter, you will build your church, and not even, Peter, you will build my church. Uh, I realized as I, as I was writing this sermon on, on Friday, if it was Peter's church, it would have to strive to be the kind of church that Peter built with Peter's name on it, the rock church that glorified Peter. And was, it would strive to be the perfect church because any man-initiated religious endeavor reflects our supreme effort to build something for God. As soon as we try to do that, as soon as we try to impress with our structures, what happens? We become less real and less like Jesus who has called us into his reality so that we can be real ourselves, which is the project of the church, committed to making people more real. The irony, of course, is the church is often the place where we wear masks. Apologies to all of you who have to wear masks, but, but before we had to wear masks, we wear them until we are brought face to face with ourselves and we do not like what we see and we are given a new face that reflects the face of God himself. As C.S. Lewis wrote it, till we have faces and not till we have Facebook. And so what was Peter's reality after he just acknowledges Jesus' reality? Peter the rock became immediately, if you read the text after, uh, after that proclamation, what happens there? Re Peter the rock was immediately the stumbling block when after Jesus says that his plan to build the church is to suffer and die, Peter rebukes him and says, God forbid, God forbid, this shall never happen to you. And all the way to the cross, Peter is saying, God forbid. And when he realizes it's going to happen, that Jesus is going to die, Peter then says, I don't know the man. And when Jesus is arrested, and twice his captors in the Garden of Gethsemane ask him, where is Jesus, this man we're trying to capture? He says, whom do you seek? And then he says to them, I am he. 
And while Peter is doing that, I mean, while Jesus is doing that shortly thereafter, what is Peter doing? He's fiercely denying who he is. Oh, no, I am not he. I'm not associated with that Jesus. I am not he. His betrayal of Jesus is a self-betrayal. It's a dual betrayal upon which, when he realizes it, he weeps bitterly. To become real, whatever it was we were counting on, our sense of self, our understanding of who Jesus is, it sometimes needs to be shattered. In the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, innumerable times, a whole Christian community has broken down because it sprung from a wish dream. But God's grace speedily shatters such dreams, just as surely as God desires to lead us to a knowledge of genuine Christian fellowship so surely must we be overwhelmed by a great disillusionment with others, with Christians in general, and if we are fortunate, with ourselves. For we are a broken people, and together we comprise a broken church. Annie Dillard again, nothing could more surely convince me of God's unending mercy than the continued existence of his church on earth. I know we call ourselves the pilgrim people. Since the inception of all souls, the pilgrim people who went out, souls on pilgrimage. And I was reading about the first pilgrims uh, in our country. They were separatists, Puritans, who took their cue from Paul's admonition, come out from among them and be separate. They had determined the Church of England was not the true Church of Christ. If they were to remain true to their faith, they must form a church of what was known as visible saints, visible saints, members of the elect who upheld each other in the proper worship of God. And so, pilgrims have been forever leaving the rotten church to form a pure church until that church shows its ugliness. And if we base our understanding of pilgrims on the band that colonized our country, we will be forever coming out and being separate. We will forever be escaping the reality of what the church is. And I turn again to Annie Dillard. We are created, she writes, sojourners in a land we did not make, a land with no meaning of itself and no meaning we can make for it alone. We forget ourselves picnicking. We forget where we are. There is no such thing as a freak accident. God is at home, and we are in the far country. Souls on pilgrimage. That's who we are, particularly at this time, this time of intense constriction in our church, of suffering, of stuff going on that we don't like. This is what we've called ourselves from the beginning, pilgrims, sojourners in the far country on their way home. When reality is unforgivingly complex, as Annie Lamott puts it, we want to escape it. Where do we turn except to Jesus, whose reality, grounded in the reality of his Father, the God of all mercy, is always forgivingly complex? And in the hardness, the difficulties, the complexities, we must not cast out ourselves or others. We must allow Jesus to make his home among us and draw us home to each other. Mary gave me, I think I'll pull it out real quickly here. I didn't do it at the first outdoor service. 
Spiritual Rhythms for Quarantine by uh, Justin Early, sorry, Deacon Mary. Um, and you know when Jesus, uh, he calls his disciples disciples, of course, they're his followers, but when he becomes intimate with them, he said, I've made known to you everything that I know. You are now my community of, not disciples, but friends. Do you have a community of friends, smaller than the church universal, smaller than the church local, but a community of friends that you hang on to, that bring you to Christ, that tell you the truth, that speak love to you and the truth? And Justin Early says uh, in in, uh, this wonderful um, spiritual rhythms for quarantine, friendship is the lifeblood of the soul. We were made for community, and without it, we wither. Friendship is the lifeblood of the soul. Thank you, Deacon Mary. So, Jesus and Peter have this revelatory moment together just before Jesus begins his descent to the cross and through hell. And he says to Peter, hang on, it's going to get real here. You're going to get real too. If you're writing a story, the whole point is the character arc. And it's conflict that changes the character. You put your characters through hell. That's the only way we change. And we have to suffer to really recognize grace when it comes. As God let Israel suffer so they would recognize his love for them. That's what we see in our passage from Romans this morning. That Elaine read for us. Where Paul's reasoning is based on the language of the covenant. Because God's love for Israel endures, the covenant with Israel endures. So that unbelieving Israel is both hardened in chapter 11, verse 7, and beloved, verse 28, at the same time. And at the end of the day, at the end of this interminable pandemic, everything, everything is always grace. For God delivered all to disobedience that he might have mercy upon all. So what gets us through the harrowing of hell The love that can only come through suffering that changes us into lovely, loving, and real people. You all know the story of the Velveteen Rabbit. Real isn't how you are made, said the skin horse. It's a thing that happens to you. When a child loves you for a long, long time, not just to play with, but really loves you, then you become real. Generally, by the time you are real, most of your hair has been loved off and your eyes drop out. And you get loose in the joints and very shabby. Any of you have a cuddly like that? I do. But these things don't matter at all. Because once you are real, you can't be ugly. Except the people who don't understand. Living stones, Peter calls us in his first epistle. Built not on any man, but on the chief cornerstone, Jesus who is the foundation of our faith. Look to the rock from which you were hewn. Amen.